you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. And that music means that we are going to have some fun. And I say that all the time, don't I? I Can you just tell that I am actually, <clears throat> excuse me, having fun doing this? Because sometimes I am and sometimes I am not. Today, maybe more so than other days. Today we are going to tackle, dun, 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 the social gospel. Now, why are we tackling the social gospel? Because the tentacles of this bad boy are still at work, unfortunately. So... We are not going to try to trace all of those tentacles. We will leave that for another day, which gives me an excuse to have more episodes. But we do want to kind of understand the roots of what we mean when we talk about social gospel. For starters, we're talking about a movement birthed in the uh, in the 19th century, which has been described as the truly only American contribution to theology Go us? Uh, It's probably not good. The idea behind this is that you bring the gospel into reality, or you're bringing the kingdom down. It was birthed out of a primarily post-millennial mindset. Um, If you're not familiar with your eschatology, there are three potential views on the millennial kingdom of Revelation chapter 20. The pre-millennial, which would be typically dispensationalist, your millennial, hi, and your post-millennial. Primarily, post-millennial mindset brings forth the social gospel, meaning they believed that the second coming of Christ would only occur after society had assimilated to its future heavenly goal, so to speak. Um, unfortunately, also, though, That means this group was also birthed, or this movement was birthed, primarily through what we call liberal theology. And I I don't mean that as as a pejorative, like, oh, you're either a conservative or a liberal. No. I mean that in the technical sense, coming out of Germany in the 18th and 19th, predominantly 19th centuries, what we call liberal theology, the search for the historical Jesus, the rejection of the the Bible as a reliable history, rejection of the miraculous, so partially Karl Barth, partially a bunch of other guys, Uh, Brueggemann, Brunemann, every German you've ever heard of in church history, basically, after the 1850s, would fall into this category, which ultimately led to a group of progressive politics. So if you want to see modern progressivism, you would have to trace that back through the 20th century into the uh, early 20th century, so think 19-teens, 1920s, and those proponents that claim to be Christian would primarily be your people we're talking about with the social gospel. I've said earlier, the idea behind this is that we are bringing God's kingdom to earth. So they they sought to make the prayer of the... uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They sought to make that a reality. That was the goal. And they sought to do that through obedience to Matthew twenty-five forty. In other words, the least of these 
commandments. They thought that was key and part and parcel with the gospel. If you'd like another Bible verse, one I've argued with actually another another pastor over would be your Luke 4 where Jesus reads the Isaiah scroll and proclaims that I have released to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, all those things. And his argument was when we do those things, we are bringing the gospel into society. And you can already start to see why we might have a problem with this. Are there any offspring or fruit of this movement? And I would say, yeah. You could legitimately argue that women's suffrage and the civil rights movement are offspring of the social gospel movement. You could also argue that prohibition is one of the offsprings of the social gospel movement. Depending on where you stand in the issue depends on whether or not you think those things are good or bad. And now keep in mind, I'm not arguing against civil rights or women's right to vote. I'm talking about a worldview that underlies. And I'm also talking about prohibition. If you're not a teetotaler, you don't see the benefit of prohibition. If you are, you certainly do. Now, if it accomplishes good things, women can vote, elevation of... Uh, minority races in society, why is this a bad thing? The answer is because it too often and very, very quickly removes the gospel from the social gospel. It overemphasizes the social and forgets the witnessing aspect of this. So if you've ever been on a quote-unquote missions trip, excuse me, a missions trip where all you did was good works. You built houses, you dug a well, you, I don't know what else you might be able to do. You painted something, you know, you built a crosswalk, you built a handicap ramp, any of these things. If that's all you did and you did not preach the gospel, you, do, you did not engage in Christian missions. You engaged in social work. That's not bad. It's just not the gospel. And that's the distinction that has to be drawn. Social gospel, true, progressive, liberal theology, social gospel proponents would argue that in those good works, you are proclaiming Christ. And the Orthodox Christian would argue, no, only because of Christ can we do these good works, or these good works are leading us in an opportunity to proclaim Christ, but they, in and of themselves, are not the gospel proclamation. They are keys or stepping stones to the gospel, and the charge may be leveled. Does, does that mean you're arguing that sometimes Christians do stuff just to have an opportunity to say stuff? Yes. Yes, I am. Am I also saying that sometimes Christians, Christians just do good things because they're commanded to? Yes. Yes, I am. I am not saying you do not do your good works. James, too, would argue that you do. Also, I think the argument we made when we talked about the Judaizers and how we live our good works, Ephesians 2.10, and our sanctification would tell you you must do good works. But we do not define them as foundational to the gospel message or as the demanded workings of our salvation. That is the difference that we are drawing. So what does this social gospel understanding get wrong? I think this is actually really easy. For starters, it misses the point of God's dealing with humanity in salvation. And you're going, what? What did you just say? All right. Does God save people or nations? See, think about this for a second. You're going, well, he saves people, right? Yes. And no, they're not the same thing. We have what we call an individual salvation. Uh, things like Ezekiel 18. 
As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he surely shall live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You know, but doesn't God earlier say in Deuteronomy and Exodus that he visits the iniquity of the father on the sons in multiple generations? Well, yes, yes, he does. Not because the sons are being punished for the fathers, but because the sons are being punished because of their sin following in the footsteps of their fathers, or because of the bad patterns that entered the family into poverty or lawlessness that the sons have either picked up or wallowed in. This is what the gospel is pointing you to. There's an individual salvation. Go to the end of the book, Revelation 9. Catch the distinctions. After the, or Revelation 9, Revelation 7, I'm sorry. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every tribe and all, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Is it all the nation? Is it all the tribe? Is it all the peoples? All the people? No. It is people from the nations, from the tribes, from the languages. And they cry out and they praise God. Salvation to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb. You, you, you know the rest. You can read Revelation 7. It will do you good. We have an individual salvation. <clears throat> Excuse me. That means by definition, we also have an individual guilt, not a corporate guilt. Individual guilt and personal responsibility for sin before God. Can I say that from scripture? 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Romans 3. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are not guilty because your nation is bad. You are not guilty because the people who speak your language are bad. You are not guilty because the people who have your skin color are bad. You are guilty because you are bad. Plain and simple. And that is why we are justified, verse 24 continues, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So if you are bad, you must come to the Savior. You cannot come on behalf of your people. You cannot come on behalf of your nationality. You cannot come on behalf of your ethnicity. You cannot come on behalf of your language. You must come on behalf of you. You, 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 you. Now, did I just conflate how God deals with nations with how God saves people? No. No, I didn't. But I do think the social gospel does. Huh? God's dealing in human governance. Does God punish disobedient nations and bless obedient nations? Yes. Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. I think Psalm 2 would make a similar point. Am I denying any of that is true? Absolutely, positively not. I am affirming it. 
we have headship in Scripture. You fall in sin, and you are in sin because your federal head, Adam, fell in sin. Is what we call original sin. You are righteous, not because you are good, but because your representative, your new federal head, Christ is righteous, and he stands before the Father and proclaims his goodness, and thereby identifying you with him proclaims your goodness. It's what we call an alien or imputed righteousness. It's not yours, it's Jesus's. He lets you have it for free. It's beautiful, isn't it? Now, none of that relegates what I'm talking about. So is your nation punished if your king is bad? Yes. Because God will judge that king. And what best way to judge that king? To judge that nation. Ask yourself this. When you read your Old Testament and you read of God judging Israel and judging Judah and sending calamity upon them because David sinned or Ahab sinned or Solomon sinned or whoever sinned, ask yourself this. Was there no one faithful in the land? I mean, think about Ahab. This is a perfect example. Ahab was wicked. The nation suffered drought for three years, calamity, famine. This was a problem. Why? Because Ahab was evil. But God told Elijah that he had a remnant, 5,000, who had not bowed the knee to Baal. They were faithful. They were loving God. Did they suffer during that time? Yes. Yes, they did, which is why, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. In the midst of this world, we are not promised goodness. We are promised suffering and evil, because that is what this world is. Therefore, his faithful people, recognizing that, are trusting in God for their deliverance, their provision, and their ultimate salvation. It's a pruning mechanism. So will God judge a nation because its laws are bad? Absolutely, and he should, because that is an example to his people, to the sinful people who are, have relegated God to the dustbin of history, and to the other nations as to what befalls them if they follow the same path. It doesn't change the fact that he has individual people within those nations who are saved, redeemed, and will be justified and glorified before his throne in eternity and will praise him, a la Revelation 7. None of that has changed. The social gospel does change that. It schmushes, highly technical term, schmushes those things together so that they cannot and do not separate. So we are righteous if our laws are righteous. We are now good because our nation is good. Do you see the problem? That means we are bad if our nation is bad. No, 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 no. You are responsible for your sin, Ezekiel 18. I am responsible for my sin, Ezekiel 18. And we will work together to overcome that sin and to ensure that others overcome that sin. But we have to remember how society gets changed. More on that in a minute. Also note the individual appeals in Scripture to back this up. Jeremiah 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Did no one in Israel, or did no one in Judah, heed Jeremiah's call? It's possible they didn't. It's also possible that some did. And the nation as the whole did not, and therefore it was judged. Is God unrighteous? Romans 9, who do you think you are? No, he's not unjust. He's punishing a wicked nation that needs to be cleansed. Will his people suffer? Yes. Will they rejoice in his judgment? Yes. They will rejoice that sin is struck down. They will rejoice that he has brought them into his kingdom. They will rejoice in all of these things. Colossians 2. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him, in him, you have been made complete. Not your nation, you. He is the head and overall rule and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. The removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith 
excuse me, in the working of God who raised him from the dead in individual salvation. So I hinted at this a second ago. How does society get better? Society gets better when the people within the society get better. Society is changed when more and more people heed the call of Christ, walk in obedience to his commandments, love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. See, this is what we've got to remember. Christianity is not a top-down religion. It is bottom-up. I do not change my behavior so that I will change my mind so that my heart will be transformed. Rather, God changes my heart, that's my foundation, which changes my thinking, which in turn changes my actions. I don't clean up so God saves me. I clean up because he has saved me. That is a marked difference and a big distinction between those two. Our, our gospel is that of salvation by grace through faith and not of works so that no man may boast. The social gospel reduces you to a working salvation. It reduces you to a societal demand of salvation. No. Do we want our society better? Yes. Do we want godly laws? Yes. Do we want people walking in accordance with Christ and his commands? Absolutely. How are we going to do that? By proclaiming his salvation and changing hearts and minds. This is your Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is your Hebrews 12 to set aside your sin and fix your eyes upon Christ. You know, we, we wrote a song about that. Look full on his wondrous face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, things like that. And when we do that, the people are different. Why was, why was Israel evil in the time of Ahab? Because the king was evil? Partially. Because the people followed their king. See, there's your problem. The people didn't follow their king and they followed Elijah. And it wasn't just a remnant, but it was the nation. The king wouldn't stand. He wouldn't be able to corrupt. He is able to corrupt because the people were already corrupted. Likewise, every nation on the face of the earth has gone the same way. And, and that's our last problem with this you know, social gospel theology, I think. What we call an over-realized eschatology. I mentioned earlier, cards on the table here. I'm an amillennial. I think that you are living in the time when Satan is bound so as not to deceive the nations, Revelation 20. I think, yes, he would like to uh, prowl around like a roaring lion and change your heart and change your mind, but the gospel will spread. The gospel works. Preach it. Proclaim it. People are saved. So while Satan is still seeking to devour, he is not able to steal that seed that is implanted in good soil, the soil of God's elect people. I, that's not possible. So I think you are in that millennial kingdom right now. If you disagree with me, don't send angry letters. You're not going to change my mind. I've looked at it. I understand. I'm not trying to change your mind. You can be pre-millennial, you know, full-blown dispensationalist rapture in the whole nine yards. And I don't think you're evil. I don't think you're a bad person. We can still be brothers in Christ. You can be a post-millennial and still be my brother in Christ. What I'm cautioning you against is what I think the social gospel misses, which is an over-realized eschatological certainty. So a post-millennial thinks that we are on the other side of Christ's reign, and so we are still seeking to influence society for good. I have no problems with that. You want to be involved in political activism? Knock yourself out. Just don't compromise your Christian beliefs for the sake of political gain. That's the mistake of too many Christians in politics, where we all go aside. The problem with the social gospel is the idea of bringing heaven down. You can't. We can't. 
you cannot from the top down legislate a morality. I think American Christianity has tried to do this through the uh, the moral majority and the religious right for the better part of the last 40 years. And it's gotten us exactly nowhere. Every big fight we've had, we've lost because we've tried to engage it at the federal level. You can't. You have to engage the battle at the personal level, arguing for individual hearts and minds by the power of the gospel. That's how this was always meant to work. Second Corinthians 5, be always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, that's not a what he has done for his people, what he has done in the nation. It's what he has done. Individual responsibility before a God who has redeemed on an individual basis. Excuse me, once again. Instead, the social gospel says, no, we're going to bring the kingdom down. We're going to elevate the world. You can't. You elevate the world by elevating the people, changing hearts and minds. And the only thing that changes the hearts and minds of men is the Holy Spirit. And that is only done by the power of the gospel of Christ. Read Romans 10. It will do you good. So, nations will be undone. Families will be undone. Why? Because as 1 Peter 2 tells you, you were, a pe- you were not a people, but now you are a people in Christ. Your family is where? He who loves father and mother is more than me is not worthy of me. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Sorry, I had to finish that line. It was going to drive me nuts if I didn't. No, who is your family? Who are your people? If they're not Christians, then you have not defined your people rightly if you are in Christ. Families will be undone. Nations will be undone. Languages will be undone. But in us, Christ will not be able to be undone. That is what Jude celebrates. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to our only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. That's where our rejoicing is. So, how do we stay on the straight and narrow then? Because, look, there's temptation in everything. And there's always the worry that if I'm not diligent enough, and by the way, Christian, you're never going to be diligent enough, which is why you're constantly examining and returning to Christ and trusting in him and praising him. You're never diligent enough. So what's my correction? Start off with this. What's your relationship to the world? Because you don't belong here. First Peter 2, you're an alien and a stranger abstaining from fleshly lust. First John 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world, because if you do, the love of the Father isn't in you. We don't belong here. Um, Building 429, great song. All I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Excellent theology in that song. This isn't your home. This world is fallen and broken, as Romans 8 describes. You are longing for a new heavens, a new earth, the way Revelation describes it. The redemption of these things, the setting right, the wrongs. In the meantime, what do you do? You proclaim Christ because in, there is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12. And you do what? Matthew 5.13-16. You are salt, you are light. You are seasoning and illuminating this dark and tasteless world. And if you've seen the fashion of this world, you can agree with me that it is tasteless. Stop wearing skinny jeans, man. (sighs) Sorry, I don't know where that came from, but you know, you needed to hear it. Instead, we influence. How? 
by making disciples. That's our call from the commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, proclaiming the gospel, changing hearts and minds by its power so that they are now too longing for a spiritual heavenly home. They are no longer indulging in the lusts of the flesh, but they are now looking for an eternal kingdom. Therefore, we are answering the second corrective. We are understanding our calling in this world. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12, but against rulers, power, spiritual forces of darkness, wickedness in the heavenly places. See, that's what we do. And how do we battle them? By changing hearts and minds. And that's our last thing. We understand our status in this world. Um, Christian, they don't like you. They don't like me either, for that matter. Uh, John 15, what did Jesus warn you? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, God's elect people, because of this, the world hates you. John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace, because in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. See, that right there is our hope. That is what we're longing for. That is what we are looking to. That is where our hope, love, patience, all of that points us to is not here, but where Christ is. Because ultimately, this is temporary, but he is eternal. Philippians 3. Join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you. And now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. See, that's our hope. That's our future. Not in this world. So what do we do? We try to take as many people with us as humanly possible. We try to proclaim the gospel to as many as we possibly can, knowing that until that day that he calls us home, we are at work in his kingdom, not building up ourselves, but building up his glorious people. Amen. Now, told you that would be fun. Little sprint through. Um, if you have questions, comments, complaints, uh, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there where we are going to get two issues out before the end of this month and get us back on track so that we will get 12 by the end of the year, I promise. Fun stuff, church history, walking through the book of Colossians this year, um, general commentary on current events. There's a section for you ladies, uh, women's ministry and, and comfort and peace and joy and all of those things, a uh, kids section with catechism for your children in case you're interested in you know teaching them something about your faith, which might be a good thing. Uh, we got a new segment, Words with Lou. <laughs> Lou is doing fun word studies, explaining to you Greek and Hebrew and why you need to know a little bit of it and how it helps you understand the richness of your Bible, and not to mention Daryl's recovery stuff. All this and yours can be found in our theological journal available on the website or where you can also sign up to have it emailed to you. So you don't have to hunt it down on the website. You can just have it dropped, dropped into your inbox whenever it is completed. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, 
Also, you can follow us here. Again, spread the word if you hate Podbean. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora. Some of you are doing that. Hi, thank you. Give us good reviews. Share us with your friends. Uh, We are working on a new thing. Because, like, you know, you get me here with the heretic stuff. And when Lou isn't working 29 hours a day because that's how often they make him work, then he and I can get together and we get to do uh, some theology and apologetic stuff, which is awesome and fun. And hopefully we're going to do some of that this week. It depends on how schedules go. But we're also working on something new where we're going to explain theology with a little bit of comedy. Hopefully it'll be fun and exciting. Uh, We are working on that. No promises when it'll get here. Hopefully in the next week or two, actually, we've got our first draft script put together. And something fun, pithy, share with your friends and neighbors. So all this and yours can be found at practicaltheologyministries.com. Check out all the good stuff. Link to church where you can worship with us Sunday mornings, 1030 Central Daylight Time, minus 6 UTC. Be glad to have you. If you can come in person, we're uh, on Linden Road in Rockford. If not, you can join us here on Podbean. And if nothing else, until I see you guys again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.